so experiences matter more than, than things. So what about a home? A home is a thing or is it? Because maybe the way to transform a house into a home, maybe that's through experiences. Maybe that's through in, in imbuing the, um, you know, the, the space with memories. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Today, we have a fascinating guest. Yes, a fascinating one. I mean, all the guests are fascinating. But today, we're talking to none other than Tal Ben-Shahar. For those of you who don't know who Tal is, he's an author and lecturer and a thought leader in the study, the science of happiness. During this conversation, we really discussed how we can apply the study of happiness and money into our lives. We dissect if there is any link between money and happiness. Tall, he actually taught two, two, not just one, two of the largest classes in Harvard University's history as a lecturer. Those classes were positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. Tall has also written eight books. Yes, that's eight books on the study of happiness. They're wonderful books, and I put a link in the show notes. Tal also is a co-founder and chief learning officer of the Happiness Studies and Potential Life. And you'll hear this in the conversation today, but Tal is an avid squash player. He won the U.S. Intercollegial Championship and the Israeli National Championship. So Tal, he knows how to play some squash. From an academic standpoint, Tal has a PhD in organizational behavior and a BA in philosophy and psychology. During this conversation, we talk about many things that create or how we can cultivate more happiness in our lives. And we talk about how Tal's model, Spire, which we get into, did not include financial well-being. This model is a guide to facilitate or cultivate more happiness in our lives, and he intentionally left out financial well-being, and we get down to the bottom of why. We talk about how curiosity can help us understand more of ourselves and even live longer. We talk about how we can spend money on things that are actually going to make us happier. And this is science-based. What I enjoyed about this conversation is Tal has taken all the research. I mean, he's been looking at this research for over 25 years, and he distills it down to easy to understand things for you and I so that we can implement them into our lives so that we can aspire to be a little happier. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tal Ben-Shahar. I highly recommend you check him out online, look at his courses. Tal is a wonderful man. Enjoy. Tal, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Good to be here. Very happy to have a conversation with you. You're someone who I've looked up to. Your work I follow diligently. It's a pleasure to have a one-on-one conversation with you. Now, I was trying to think of somewhere to start, and I went back and forth, and I decided I have to start with squash for a specific reason. 
And, and that specific reason is because it popped up on your LinkedIn not too long ago. I, I think it's safe to say squash played a large role and still continues to play a large role in your life. But from what I read, it appears you gave up squash for 25 years. But a couple, three weeks ago, you decided to grab those shoes, lace them up, grab your lac- racket and hit the court again, this time with your son, if the internet is correct. What was or is the significance of getting back on the court, this time with your son? And what has squash, if anything at all, taught you about happiness? Wow. Uh, so that, that, that was unexpected, Sean, but thank you for the <laughs> question. <laughs> so yeah, squash was the most important part of my life growing up. In fact, I remember distinctly when I was 16 years old and you know, I was playing squash every day before school, after school, instead of school, but don't tell my parents. And I remember distinctly at the age of 16 thinking, what am I going to do with my life when I no longer have squash? Because that, that, that is what I cared about. And uh, I did turn professional later on in life. And, and again, this was my life. And then I got injured. And as you can imagine, it was uh, uh, devastating for me when the doctor told me, the, the orthopedic surgeon told me, uh, your professional career is over. And it was, you know, months that, that I, was, I was really in, in, in dire straits as a result of it. And uh, still for uh, probably 20 years or 15 years, the most common dream that I had was me playing squash. And years after I left, it was still very much uh, part of my life. But it taught me so many things about uh, life and, and, and happiness. It taught me you know, the, the value of hard work. He told me the, the value of uh, losing and winning. And he taught me how to entertain hardships and, and, and challenges, emotional ones, physical ones. And uh, in so many ways, until today, it's a blueprint for a lot of what I do and how I do what I do. Now, I would always say that, you know, I, I, I would go back to playing if uh, one of my children picked up squash. And, you know, my eldest son, you know, he's, uh, he's all into basketball. My middle daughter is, uh, is a dancer. And uh, my youngest son just picked up squash. So uh, I went on court after uh, 25 years. And, uh, you know, I'm not the man I used to be, but, uh, but it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> wow, that is wonderful. I want to get into defining happiness. But uh, before we started recording, we had a brief conversation about Bruce Springsteen. And you said something that made me think of him again. And you had this dream of what is life going to be like if I never can play squash again? And I'm from Canada. We have similar things around hockey. People attach so much meaning, their identity to it. And when that gets stripped away, there's this line from, I think it's the river Springsteen has. And it goes something like, is a dream a lie if it don't come true or something worse? So how I'm bringing Springsteen into happiness and these dreams is, what was it like to have your whole identity stripped away and, and did it seem like a lie? At times it seemed unreal because, you know, my entire identity was, uh, was tied to it, you know, as a squash player, which is why, by the way, you know, whenever uh, I lost, I would be devastated. And when I won, I was, uh, you know, on top of the world. What it taught me when, when, when my dream was shattered was that psychologically speaking, I was much more resilient than I thought I was because again, I could not imagine my life without it. And then, you know, life handed me a, you know, a, a curveball and I was without it. 
and as difficult as, as, as it was, I did survive. I did move on and, and, and it took me a while, but I did find other passions, you know, mostly, mostly not, not in athletics this time, mostly in, in, in academia. You know that until the age of 21, I actually did not read a book unless I had to for school. And even when I had to for school, you know, I would read the cliff notes. So, you know, we read crime and punishment for, for literature. I, I read the cliff notes for it and, and, you know, and I ended up doing okay on the exam. I only read crime and punishment you know, when I was in my thirties, the, the, the full version. So I did not read a book because I wasn't interested. I was only interested in squash. And if it had nothing to do with squash that, and suddenly I discovered books and, you know, I discovered the, you know, the, the, the intellect and ideas and philosophers and, uh, and psychologists. And that became fascinating to me. People say, is there only one person who's the right person for you? And they would ask, is there only one career path that's the right career path for you? And my answer is, you know, as, as romantic as it would be to answer yes to either questions, my answer is no. There are uh, many people who we can connect to in a deep, well, I don't know if many, but there are certainly more than one person who we can connect to in a deep and meaningful way. And there are more than one career paths that we can take and feel fulfilled pursuing. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that answer. And I, I wanted to go towards defining happiness, but you, you're bringing me to something else I hear you talk about, which I think is important. I feel like at times we subscribe to this notion, I need to find my, the most purposeful, meaningful job. Like I have to be this super citizen to the world. And I'm now I'm like almost psychologically distressed because I'm trying to find it. I can't find it. I pe- see people on social media who appear to have it. And it almost seems to me that it's an endless pursuit where you talk a lot about meaning and bringing meaning to what you're doing. And I hear that's what you're saying in, in that answer. Can you, can you kind of speak more to this idea yeah. of meaning and calling? You know, one, one of the population that I speak to most often, of course, you know, are college students. I, you know, I, I teach them so often um, confronted by college students who would say, you know, I, you know, I need to find that perfect job or, you know, that, 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 that work that will provide me the meaning and, 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 and purpose and, and, and provide for my every other need and change the world for the better. And, and then they would bring up and say, is it this job or is it that job? And, you know, and they would give me a, you know, sort of like a multiple choice uh, question. And my answer to that is that it doesn't matter that much that you can find meaning and purpose in most workplaces, that you can find fulfillment in most of what you choose to do. And yeah, of course, you know, if you're more of a finance guy, then, you know, perhaps going into a a job where you're, it's all about, you know, interacting with people, maybe that's not the right job for you and vice versa. If you're a people's person, well, you shouldn't be sitting in front of an Excel sheet all day. So yeah, find a fit, but within the general parameters of a fit, there are many options that can work and can work really well. The point here, and there's, and there's a lot of research on this in psychology, is identifying that fit, and then within that workplace, finding things that are meaningful. You know, one of the exercises that I do with, um, with uh, employees, with, with companies, is uh, that instead of asking them to write a job description, I ask them to write a calling description. 
So a job description is, you know, what do I do when I get in? When I get in, you know, I open my computer, I then interact, I have a meeting, I, you know, meet a client. That's a job description. A calling description focuses on what is meaningful in the work that I do. Well, it's meaningful for me to learn about the market or it's meaningful for me to help my coworker or to make a difference in the life of my client or whatever it is. Writing um, about your work from the perspective of what provides you with a sense of meaning and purpose. And doing that can make all the difference in how you experience what you're doing. In other words, it's not just the objective circumstances of your work that matter. It's also your subjective interpretation of what you're doing that matters. That subjective interpretation just really spoke to me. A lot of my my reading and thoughts are in, in around money and a relationship with it. And you just think of work in and itself. Norm, most of us, we work to get paid to some degree. And I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, I need a new job. I need this, this, or this. And I like what you're saying is, is that subjective interpretation of what we're doing because I feel like a lot of us are looking for this aspirational job that may not exist where this idea of bringing calling or understanding your calling and then finding that within your work is, I feel like it normalizes the idea that everybody, not I don't know, maybe you can answer me that, but we can find our calling in more places than we think. Absolutely. And, and, and let, let me share a story, Sean, an experience that really had an impact on me. It happened around 10 years ago when um, my wife and I were looking for a new home. You know, we walked into this, you know, we were looking in a few places and then we walked into this house and we both uh, immediately loved it. And then, uh, you know, it was, it seemed like our dream home. We asked the, uh, the realtor how much they wanted for it. And immediately from a dream home, it became a nightmare for me. But uh, my wife said, you know, we've got to make this work. And so we did. So the following day, I went to our mortgage officer to take out uh, a mortgage. And the minute uh, I went there and my wife and I went together, the minute we went there, we noticed that something was very peculiar about this mortgage officer. You know, we, we sat there for 45 minutes with this mortgage officer and she was going on Excel sheet after Excel sheet after Excel sheet. And she said, you know, this is 3.1, this is 2.9, this is uh, 15 years, this is 30 years mortgage. And, you know, Excel sheet after Excel sheet. And we sat there for 45 minutes and she's happy throughout that whole process. So I think to myself, okay, it's one of those days. We all have them uh, where things are just going great. The next time, a few days later, I go by myself. And again, I sit there for 35 minutes. And again, more, more numbers. And she's happy. Third time, my wife and I go together to sign the dotted lines. And we sign over 60 times. <laughs> sign here. Okay, now, and then this was all by hand. You know, it wasn't yeah. uh, electronic. Sign here, sign here, sign here. And, you know, about 40 minutes, she's, you know, top of the world. Now, at the end of this experience, you know, I can't help myself because this is what I do for a living. I say to her, may I ask you a question? She said, sure, happily. And, then, and, and I ask her, you really like your work, don't you? And she says to me, I love my work. And I say, wow, why? And she says, because every day, I get to help people fulfill their dreams. And then she looks at me and she says, and today I'm going to do the same for you. And she did. We live 
in our dream home. And I think about her often. She helped us fulfill our dreams. Now there are thousands and, and hundreds of thousands of mortgage officers around the world. Most of them see their work as a job, you know, something that needs to be done. And I'm sure she also has her job days when she just wants to get home and, and she's tired and, and she's had enough. However, she also, mostly, much of the time, sees the calling element in what she does, helping people fulfill their dreams. Now, we can identify that meaning, that sense of purpose in not in every workplace, but in just about every workplace. But that's on us. That's the subjective interpretation of what we do. I appreciate how you you said like, she has those days where it's a job, but the majority of it is that calling. And I, I just like that answer because a lot of us are experienced with the mortgage officer is a very job, like revolving door, just in and out, in and out. You wouldn't think that you'd be talking about that interaction 10 years later. So I, I like how that speaks to your message. I just want to point out another, another thing here that, that, that you highlighted. We all have our job days and that's important to keep in mind. Uh, and it's important to... Meaning, you know, the children today very often are uh, inexperienced with boredom because they think they, they need to always be, uh, you know, stimulated. And, you know, we have the screen for that. But boredom is very important. You know, one of, one of my uh, close friends who is a child psychologist, whenever her children say to her, mommy, I'm bored. Her response is, that's okay, sweetheart. Just be bored with dignity. And it's important to learn to be bored. It's important for us as adults to learn to, to, to embrace those job days, those boring days, those challenges and hardships. Because if we don't learn to, to, to embrace and accept and deal with those days, well, that's going to mar all of our experiences, not just those days. Yeah, again, we talk this idea of normalizing it. That's just normalizing that it's okay to feel those because sometimes the narrative out there is like, Embrace the day. It's a beautiful gift. Never feel sad. And then you feel shame when, when inevitably your kid spills the milk and this and that and that. And you feel that. But I like how you're saying most days it's to feel on the happier side. You purchasing the house made me think of, I, I don't know if uh, Elizabeth Dunn did the research, but in her book, Happy Money, she talks about how initially when we buy a home, we get spikes of happiness and feel good. And I think the study was actually 10 years that dissipates. What, what end of the research would you fall in? So here's the thing also in, uh, in the same book, they talk about research distinguishing between things and experiences. That, you know, when people are, uh, you know, let's are given, you know, have discretionary income and they can, you know, they spend, uh, they have $3,000. You know, what do you do with the $3,000? Do you buy uh, an extra couch for your living room, you know, that is more beautiful than the one that you have? Or do you go on a vacation with your family? And, and, and one would think, well, a couch lasts a lot longer than a, you know, one week vacation. But when it comes to happiness, the vacation will have more impact on your happiness. For most people, again, we're, we're talking averages here. So experiences matter more than, than things. So what about a home? A home is a thing or is it? Because maybe the way to transform a house into a home, maybe that's through experiences. Maybe that's through in, in imbuing the, um, you know, the, the space with memories, 
Because after all, why is a vacation, why does a vacation, a holiday contribute to our happiness levels for a long time? Because there are memories, because it creates more intimate relationships, because it's with us 10 years later as well. And it's the same with, with the house turned into a home. There are so many memories there of us, you know, growing up together, learning together, struggling uh, together, laughing together. And, and that's how a house becomes a home through experiences. It makes me think of my parents' home. Lots of good family experiences there. It's not just a house. We haven't touched on what is happiness. And from what I understand in your work, your readings, to you, it's the ultimate currency. And with us having so many different new currencies coming out, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, I think it's <laughs> nice to hear what is the ultimate currency as we're like throwing all these different um, currencies that we can pick from. Yeah, you, you just gave me an idea. Maybe, maybe, maybe create uh, a new crypto oh, currency around, yeah. around happiness. That's Don't a, tell anyone this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see happiness as the ultimate currency. Why? Because um, it's the currency by which we ought to take measure of our lives. So let's say um, I offer you uh, two options. One option is um, your basic needs met. You'll have enough food on your table. Nothing much beyond that. You'll experience a happy life. That's one option. Option number two, you'll be a multi-billionaire. You'll have as much money, as many homes, as many cars, as, as, as much as you want of anything but you're also guaranteed misery. And now you can't say, I'll have so much money, I'll be able to buy the best psychologist and you know, who will make me, no, you're guaranteed uh, misery. What are, what are you going to take? Well, if you really think about it, most people will say, you know, give me the poor but happy life rather than the very rich and miserable life. Why? Because the value of money, the ultimate value of money lies in how much happiness it can provide us. Beyond that, it's meaningless. And again, I'm not talking about basic needs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, basic needs come first. You know, it's very difficult to talk about happiness when you don't have enough food on your table or to talk about well-being when you don't have a, a, a shelter above your head. But once basic needs are met for safety, shelter, food, some education, then beyond that, money doesn't matter that much to happiness unless you know what to do with it so that it can contribute to your happiness. For example, experiences matter more than things. Giving contributes a great deal to happiness. Helping others is also a way of helping ourselves and so on. Sometimes we have this resistance and it's interesting when we hear that, we're like, whoa, but it would just make it, make it so much easier. And, and there's one researcher that I, I have spoken to in the past who's a financial planner for high net worth people. And what he said is what they've seen is that when they get to that level, they thought they would have enough. There's this feeling of almost of depression that it's like, oh no, I did all of that work. I sacrificed so much, but I'm not feeling what I thought I was going to feel. And I just say that because I know at times when people see others and it appears that, oh, life would be so much easier, which I mean, income to some degree, like you said, those needs, it makes life easier. But if happiness is the goal, so could you touch on then, because I think it's it, it, your aspire, or sorry, aspire model aligns well with these two scenarios in terms of option two, perhaps they didn't have enough time to implement 
the Spire model. So can you, can you explain what Spire is and how does it contribute to our happiness? The reason why there are so many people who seemingly have it all, whether it's financially, whether it's in terms of prestige, is because of what I've come to call the arrival fallacy. The arrival fallacy is the false belief that when we get there, when we attain our goal or what, what we think is our ultimate goal, then we'll be happy. And let me actually depict this through, through an example, an extreme example, but actually quite common example. Imagine this person whose dream it is to become a, uh, a movie star, an actor. He, you know, he graduates from high school, college, whatever, and he goes off to Hollywood. The dream is to become an actor. He's not happy because what he's doing is weighing tables. What, what he's doing is, you know, serving in, in, in a restaurant, making pittance, unknown, obscure, lonely, but he has a dream. And what drives him is that when he fulfills that dream, then he will be happy. And he, you know, he waits table for um, five years, for eight years. And on the ninth year, he goes to an audition and there is the breakthrough. And overnight, he becomes famous. Overnight, he becomes extremely wealthy. He's admired, revered. He can buy anything that he wants. He can have almost any person whom he wants because he's admired by so many. He's living life to its fullest. And he says at that point, it was all worth it. All the pain and the struggles and the unhappiness were worth it. Because now I'm really feeling on top of the world. And how long does that last? Six months, nine, maybe a year. And then after a year or two years at best, he goes back to where he was before. Unhappy, stressed perhaps, like he was before. Only this time, it's different. It's a lot worse. Why? Because five years prior or 10 years before, he had the dream. And he said, when I get there, then I'll be happy. Now he's there and he realizes that there is no there there. And now he's despondent. And you know what the difference is between sadness and depression? The difference is that depression is sadness without hope. And now he doesn't have hope anymore because he has achieved his ultimate dream. He thought that he would make it and he would be happy, live happily ever after, just like in the movies. But he doesn't. And he doesn't know what to do. And now he looks for answers, not in reality, because reality didn't give him the answers. So he looks for the answer outside of reality. And what's outside reality? Well, it could be drugs, alcohol, or the ultimate exit from reality, suicide. And that's why we see so many people who have made it, who seemingly have it all, turn to these pathways as a way out of reality. Why? Because they were led by the illusion that when you achieve that goal, whether it's wealth, whether it's prestige, whether it's being admired, revered, and sought after, that that is the path to happiness. It's not. At best, these achievements and attainments will lead to a temporary high, a spike in our levels of happiness. And now the question is, and, and, and Sean, going back to your uh, question about Spire, now the question is, so how do we find 
I, I, I just want to say, I am glad you're doing that work there. Like even that statement there, like spoke into my soul of like all these things you see online of rise and grind sacrifice for the next 10 years. So you can live the next 40 years as, you know, on a beach or whatever. I, I just appreciate this, your message. So, so thank you. Thank you, Sean. And you know, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not against hard work. Mm -hmm. I'm not against ambition. I'm not against struggles when appropriate. However, the question is, why am I struggling? What am I struggling for? Am I doing it for something that is personally meaningful, that's important, something that will contribute in some meaningful, purposeful way? That's very different than just struggling so that I can have, you know, a, a bigger car, bigger house or more, uh, you know, more likes on my social media. It just reminds me so much of something that I realized for many years, I was very ambitious. I still am, but I was, I was running. I was busy 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., signed up for marathons, triathlons. I was busy. I had so many things I was juggling. And it felt good when people were like, wow, Sean, you're so busy. How do you do all this? And, and it was through a lot of inner work that it was sometimes life just made me, force me to take a look inside. But I realized when I was a kid, I was super shy. And through my professional career, I, I began talking and it felt good. But what I realized is a lot of ambitious qualities of mine was, no, I didn't know why I was doing it. And what I discovered I was doing it because it silenced that inner shy kid who's, who all the time was being like, you're, you're shy. No one wants to hear you. Even when I felt like I was confident, but when I ran, when I signed up for marathons, when I posted, I ran a marathon on social media without training properly for it. It, it, it made that inner kid feel good when there was likes, this, this. Through work, I realized why I was doing that. And it was impacting my marriage, my kids. I, I wasn't coming home till later. So I, I share that sentiment of, I like to work hard, but I, it was a maladaptive approach to just make my inner kid feel good who, he was just a yeah. kid. So thank you for that. Yeah, that's a great insight. You know, Blaise Pascal, the, the French philosopher said, he can find happiness who can find joy in the solitude of his room. And what that means is that we need to learn to deal with, with silence, with being alone. And if we're able to find joy there, well, then, then, then we're not running away from anything. We can find a genuine, deep happiness. SPIRE is, uh, is an acronym. It's an acronym that stands for the different elements of happiness. Because, you know, many people define happiness, you know, they say, oh, I went to the, to the beach, I was so happy. Or, uh, oh, that ice cream made me happy. And pleasure is part of happiness, but it's only a small part of happiness. Happiness is a multidimensional construct. Specifically, it comprises, as I see it, and again, this is my definition, it doesn't mean that it's the only, it's certainly not the only definition, and it's certainly not the only right definition, but my definition of happiness, five elements. The first element is spiritual well-being. That's the S of Spire. Spiritual well-being, we can, of course, find through religion, but it can come from other sources. It can come from a sense of meaning and purpose at work, in our homes, or wherever. Spiritual well-being also comes from being present, being mindful, whether it's while meditating or whether it's while being present in a conversation or while um, doing Excel sheets. Being present is uh, a source of spiritual well-being as is being uh, finding a sense of meaning. The second element of the SPIRE model is physical well-being. 
This is about uh, physical exercise. You know that there is research showing that regular physical exercise, you know, as little as 30 minutes three times a week, has the same effect on our psychological well-being. I'm not even talking about physical well-being. On our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. In fact, it works in the same way. It releases norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, the feel-good chemicals in the brain. Physical well-being is about nutrition. That uh, makes a big difference, not just to our physical health, also to our psychological health. Rest and recovery are critical for our physical well-being and our overall well-being. Touch is an important element, an important component of, uh, of physical well-being and by extension of happiness. So we have spiritual well-being and physical well-being. The third element that I aspire is intellectual well-being. This is often overlooked. But do you know that there is research showing that people who are curious, who ask questions, who are learning all the time, are not just happier, they also live longer. So curiosity may kill the cat, but it helps us live longer. Learning something about uh, through uh, art or through literature or nature, deeply engaging with content. Again, whether it's text, whether it's nature, whether it's a work of art, that cultivates, helps us to cultivate our intellectual well-being, an important component of happiness. Fourth element is the R of Spire, relational well-being. Number one predictor of happiness, quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. Now, those people may be our partner, it may be friends, it may be colleagues at work, it may be family, it actually doesn't matter. As long as we have close, intimate relationships, people who support us, whom we support. Finally, emotional well-being. That's the E of Spire. Emotional well-being is about learning to deal with painful emotions, which are part and parcel of every life. Learning to deal with uh, sadness, envy, or uh, anxiety, or anger. These are human emotions, learning to embrace them, allowing them to flow through us and cultivating pleasurable emotions like joy and excitement and, and love and so on. These are the five elements of happiness. Now, it doesn't mean that we need to focus on each one at every moment. But when we look at our life as a whole, we need to think about cultivating to some extent each of these spire elements. For some people more than others, you know, intellectual well-being is extremely important, which is why it shows, you know, the life of an academic. For someone else, it may be physical well-being and they may, you know, run marathons. You know, for someone else, it's all about relationships. Now, this doesn't mean if relationships are not, you know, maybe top for me, doesn't mean that relationships are not important for happiness. They are. The question is, we need to Given that we have limited amounts of time, we need to learn where our focus is and when. You know, with such a subjective thing as happiness, I really appreciate this, this model because as you're going through there, those are highlights of my life. Yep, those are highlights of my life. And I even think with the pandemic, a couple of my neighbors were all dads. We, we run and it was relationships, physical, and we have stimulating conversations. Yeah, and that really helped us. We, we didn't feel so isolated in the pandemic because we would get together a few times a week and unintentionally felt the outcomes of happiness. So I really, really appreciate that. 
and you know, Sean, you say unintentionally, but most of us have an intuition as to the things that would make us happy or happier. And this is exactly why we need those um, quiet times that we were talking about to, to reflect because, you know, research is very important. And, you know, and I can talk about research for, you know, hours and, and months, but no less important is me-search. And me-search is about reflecting on what are those things that, that, that are important, that are meaningful to me? Uh, what are the questions that I want to ask? What are the things that I want to learn? What relationships do I want to invest more in? These are important questions to ask. You know, just asking those questions made me think about your, your comment around curiosity. And I know for myself, as I like tried to understand myself more, I had to replace any sort of rigidity or um, defensiveness with curiosity. And I, I just appreciate how you brought up curiosity in the sense of it makes us happier and also lives longer. But do you find at times cultivating curiosity there's some resistance that we might face being like, ah, I don't want to think of those things because we might be afraid what's on the other side. Yes. And, and, and by the way, I, I don't think there is anything wrong with that. We, we may decide, you know, okay, I'm, I, I don't want to go there. And that's okay. The thing about curiosity is that we need to find those areas in life, those topics, if you will, that, that we are curious about, that are interesting uh, for us, that we want to delve deeper and deeper into, you know, I often hear it from parents who say to me, you know, one of my children is, 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 is really not curious. You know, they're not interested in school. They're not, you know, what do I do with them? And my answer to that is, is like saying, well, you know, one of my children is, you know, really doesn't uh, eat. No, they may not eat uh, cucumbers uh, and broccoli, but they may eat oranges and, uh, and chocolate. It's in our nature to crave food. It's in our nature to crave knowledge. The question is, what food? The question is, what knowledge? And our role as parents, and by the way, also as parents to ourselves, is to identify what are those areas that our child is curious about, is potentially passionate about. And the same for us, of course. What is it that we would like to learn? What, what, what piques our interest? You know, what article in the paper are we all, or, or section in the paper are we always drawn to? What conversations do we always enjoy having or did enjoy having? Because maybe there lies our treasure that will lead us to the ultimate currency. So I have to say, I, I had to fully embody my own curiosity when I read that you thought about putting financial well-being into the Spire model. And I felt my rigidity come up like, wow, really, really? And then I'm like, okay, you need to listen. But it was, I guess, through that stillness and that curiosity to learn that I started to reflect on the financial system as we know it now, where financial literacy is like a buzzword. Essentially, financial literacy is shoving information down people's mouths, hoping that they're going to change. We look at the statistics, at least in Canada, we're becoming more and more in debt, money stressing us out. So perhaps that's not working. Can you speak to maybe, why did you intentionally leave money out? And I, I feel like I totally see what you're saying. And now I see things differently on how I see people can change their behaviors, whether it's money or whatever. I wrote my book called Happiness Studies on the Spire model. And the book was published by Pelgrave, which is a, an academic publisher. And every academic book goes through a, the a refereeing process where people who I don't know who they are read the book 
and comment on it and, and, and then recommend whether or not to, to publish it to the publisher. One of the uh, reviewers brought this point up and he said, you need to add to Spire a sixth element, which is financial well-being, because it's so important and so central to so many people and to their, to their well-being. And he even suggested, he said, uh, it can still be an acronym. It can simply be Aspire instead of Spire, Aspire. And the A stands for affluence well-being. So I thought this was very, very, very smart and, and really took it to heart and spent a lot of time thinking about, should I add, you know, affluence or financial well, well-being? I decided not to. The reason is not because I don't think financial literacy is, is unimportant, not because I don't think money impacts our levels of well-being, but it's not as central as the other elements. And let me explain. When we talk about spiritual well-being, there are many philosophers and psychologists who talk about human beings as being a meaning-making, meaning-making creatures. That our life and what distinguishes us from other animals, from other creatures, so to speak, is the fact that we search for meaning. When we talk about physical well-being, well, of course, part of our, part of us, we are also an animal. Intellectual well-being, we are a rational animal. This is what Aristotle defined a human being as. So it's very much part of who we are, what goes on in our, in our minds. Relational well-being, no person is an island, as, uh, as John Donne said. We all need those interactions. We would quite literally, or, and we can, and unfortunately people do, die of loneliness. We are relational creatures, relational beings. And finally, emotions. You know, David Hume, the philosopher, said, reason is and ought only be a slave to the passions. You know, we're emotional beings. So emotions, of course, matter to who we are as human beings. So whether we're talking about meaning, whether we're talking about physical body, whether we're talking about our rational faculties, whether we're talking about our relationships or about our emotions, these are all central elements of a person. Not even economists talk about us being financial creatures. Yes, finance is important. It is a key element of happiness, but it's not, it's not as central, as fundamental as everything else. Moreover, it's through the other or through the spire elements that we can become more financially adept. So we know, for instance, that people who find a sense of meaning in their work are more successful over time. We certainly know that energy is critical. Physical well-being is critical for success at work, for making money. We know that certainly in the 21st century, we must cultivate our curiosity. We need to learn things constantly if we are to remain competitive in a very competitive, uncertain, and changing market. Relationships are critical for organizational success, for individual success. And learning to manage our emotions, key for management, key for flourishing, key for financial EQ, turns out to be more important than IQ. Emotional intelligence, more important than, you know, verbal or even uh, mathematical intelligence to be successful. So financial well-being is a derivative, not a primary. It's a derivative of the five elements of well-being. It doesn't mean it's not important. It just means that it's not primary, it's secondary. 
thank you for that explanation because like I said, I had some rigidity around there. And then when you explained about that primary and secondary, it started making sense to me. And, and, and then I, I later had heard something you said, you quoted Socrates about knowing the good or knowing the good is doing the good. And you said that was a fault of like, you can't just know information and do it. Then it started coming to me. I'm like, wait a second. If we have this spire model in place, the vast majority of people who we maybe say that they need some improvement in their financial health, they know what to do. But perhaps it's some psychological barriers or something underneath that is preventing them from implementing that because I can Google and have great blogs on how to do it. So this has like completely changed my mindset around financial conversations with people. And in fact, I'm in a, a master's in positive psychology right now and we're approaching our research project. And I, I'm toying around, the, I'm using curiosity to, to toy around the idea of, can we implement something like that and then test, do people have better outcomes down the road in, with their um, financial health? So I really appreciate that, that framing around the Spire model and why you intentionally left out. And Sean, let, let me add just a couple of things. Many of my students when they teach happiness, they include financial well-being. It's more than okay. Remember, uh, you know, what, what, I, what I remind my students always is that you teach you. Of course, I learned a great deal from my teachers and I hope they, they, they learn from, um, from, from material that I introduce them to. At the same time, you have to teach you. Mm-hmm. So if for you, financial well-being is part of the, the of the, the well-being model, by all means, teach it because that's when you'll be the best teacher, not when you teach someone else. That's the first thing. The second thing, you know, you were talking about those barriers that very often exist. And as you point out, you know, very often it's not technical. It's mm-hmm. not like we don't know what we need to do and how to spend our money, but there is some psychological barrier that gets in our way, that, that d- diverts us from the healthier path. And it's through research, combined with research, of course, that we can identify what those barriers are. And, and I, I appreciate that about adding in the financial well-being component. You know, the, the part that got me thinking is just how simple at times some of these financial decisions can be on the surface, but it's very complex underneath. But then with research around happier people or more successful versus successful people become happy, Mamie just started thinking all about this and not, not saying that they know financial information, but there's some research around just-in-time financial information, which is like, okay, when I'm going to get the mortgage, I need to know, like I need to go grab it. But I feel like if we're psychologically sound and we're you know, implementing things like Spire, then we are able to then go absorb that information and contain it and implement it. Yeah, I think and that's a very important quality to have in today's world because there's just way too much information out there. Even if uh, you're an expert in, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a you know, financial advisor, as an analyst, there are new ideas and new findings coming out literally every day. There's just too much information. I like what you mentioned is, you know, you know just in time. When I need something, I have the confidence and the ability to, to search for it and to identify what it is that I need. When um, people talk about happiness, they very often think, okay, so happiness is for those people who are doing well. Or, you know, happiness is for those people who don't have concerns or worries in their life. And and that's not the case. Happiness contributes to uh, a person who's doing well, and yeah, they can become happier. But the study of happiness can also help us 
when we're struggling. In fact, the way I see it is that the science of happiness strengthens our psychological immune system. A stronger psychological immune system doesn't mean that we don't experience difficulties and hardships. It simply means that when we experience these difficulties and hardships, we recover more promptly and we can deal with those hardships and difficulties in a better way. Just like a strong physical immune system doesn't mean we don't get sick. It simply means we get sick less often. And when we do get sick, we recover more promptly. In other words, the science of happiness contributes to our psychological immune system, which means it helps us be more resilient. Thank you. I feel like I could talk to you all day long. I, I want to respect our time. I have a, a standard question that I ask, and I'm going to ask it here. Let's imagine you're at life end, whatever age that is, wherever you are, and you're looking off your front porch at something that brings you peace and you feel at ease. If you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned on having a healthy, happy relationship with money, what would be a theme of that letter? Money is a means, not an end. Money is a means towards leading a more full and fulfilling life, which you have to define for yourself. And after you define it for yourself, then you can identify the true role of money for you. Thank you. And thank you for this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. And thank you for the important work that you do. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tal Ben-Shahar. I really, really did. Check out his work, buy a book, read it. I promise you won't regret it and you will find a lot of value in it. Speaking of value, please, if you are finding value in these conversations, send your favorite episode to your friend, colleague, brother, sister, mom, whomever might enjoy it. And if you can spare a few minutes, if you could head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, I would highly appreciate it. Until next time, have yourself a good week.